Remain standing for the reading of God's Word from Matthew chapter 6. We'll begin our reading at verse 5 through verse 13 as we begin a focused time on prayer. Now hear the Word of God. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be like the hypocrites are. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. After this manner therefore pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Majestic and holy God, who has revealed yourself to us in this familial term, Father. We are not worthy for such greatness and such honor to be called your sons and to be made princes. And yet, in your goodness and in your grace, in your manifold mercies, you have given us what we deserve not. You have made us fit to come into your presence, into your royal palace in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we ask that your Spirit would be poured out upon us and give us an understanding of this Word, imprint it in our minds and upon our hearts, and bring forth much fruit that we would consider our time of prayer, perhaps in a different way, and yet looking upon our great God in all of your glory. So do your work and bring forth the fruit that would please you, change our lives, and give us a greater hunger for a time that we spend with you in prayer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I've entitled the message in the liturgy, Addressing God in Prayer, and and yet I thought as I began to develop the message more fully that perhaps maybe more generally we should entitle it Kingdom Praying. As we consider praying and prayer, so much of your Christian life is revealed by your praying. Your Christian joy your spiritual power, your ability to stand in the day of evil, your spiritual character, your sanctification, your worldview, how you see life, all of this springs from your prayer life. If you're a chronic complainer, your prayer life is shallow and mostly filled with requests to God 
about making your life better. If you are a contentious person, whether a contentious wife or a contentious child or even a confrontational man who thrives in that atmosphere, your prayer life is filled with requests to change other people to conform how you would have them to be. If you pray very little, you reveal that you live life mostly in the flesh, thinking about your life from the viewpoint of the world and are rather presumptuous with God for the graces that you need to live life. See, how we pray and what we pray reveals a lot about who we are as a person and where we are in our sanctification. Kingdom praying is here what Jesus was teaching. And it goes against the manner in which the righteous leaders of his day were accustomed to praying, oftentimes in the way that we can be accustomed to praying. Kingdom praying is learning to pray in a God-centered manner, making Him and His priorities the weightier part of your communication with Him. Now let me say that again. Kingdom praying is learning to pray in a God-centered manner, making Him and His priorities the weightier part of your communication with Him. The Lord's Prayer, as we have read and which is before us, is a model prayer. It's really a skeleton of bones, if you will, on which we then hang the meat of our praying. It's not meant to be merely recited, though it's certainly appropriate. But this is a model that consists in a summary form of every prayer and every request that we could ever pray. And we can see God's priority right here in praying. First of all, I'd like for us to see the construction of this prayer. Today is more of an introductory message for what we're going to get into in the details. But the construction of the prayer, before we get into those details, we see in in itself is instructive. First of all, this prayer begins with an address to God. It ends in the majesty of God, and in the middle, which is what we call the body of the prayer, it has six petitions. These six petitions are each denoted with an imperative, that is a command in the Greek. The first three commands or petitions given in a form of the command have to do with God's rights. The last three petitions have to do with our needs. And we often think of prayer as requesting, and it is. But Jesus puts these requests rather forcibly in terms of these imperatives. And I think there's a lot to learn from that. There's a familiar, familial boldness that God wants us to have with Him. Moments ago as I prayed, I was praying imperatives to God. Now how can we command God? Well, Jesus has given us a model here that says for us to come boldly to the throne of grace. Lord, grant this. 
do this. Now, the important aspect of this prayer is to see and live as God, as our Father. We see, first of all, in this prayer, there is the Father's worship. We have the address at the beginning, and we have a doxology at the end. The second thing we should see in the construct of this prayer are the Father's rights. We have three of those petitions. The Father's rights, first of all, has to do with His name being hallowed. Second of all, it has to do with the priority of His kingdom. And third, it has to do with His will being accomplished perfectly here on earth as it is in heaven. Then we have the Father's provision. Those happen to encapsulate the last three petitions for our daily sustenance. The Father's provision of grace, and then the Father's provision of His protection. Now, kingdom praying is effectual as we put God's priorities in all of our praying as the centrality in our praying. In fact, if you analyze this prayer, there are eight parts. There is the introductory address... There are six petitions and the closing doxology. Five of those eight parts of this prayer have to do with God. Only three-eighths have to do with us. Five-eighths have to do with God's worship and His rights, and then three-eighths have to do with our needs. Let's take part of that construction or that outline and consider it now here briefly this morning. First of all, let's think of the Father's worship. How this prayer is opened and how this prayer is closed. Because first of all and foremost of all, prayer must be understood and it must be seen as worship. Prayer is worship. We see, first of all, in the address, it expresses three things. It expresses an intimacy, a majesty, and a corporate fellowship. First of all, let's look at that intimacy. We have an intimate Father. Our Father, who art in heaven. The prayer begins and ends in worship. Every prayer request is enveloped in the worship of God. It's the same pattern we have in the Psalms. And as he concludes this prayer, for yours, our Father, is the kingdom, and yours, our Father, is the glory, and yours is all of the honor and the majesty and all of that. Father, it's yours. And it takes the transcendent majesty of God and it links it to an imminent warmth of a father to a child. Father. Father. That's how Jesus is teaching us to pray. Father. That word father is such an important aspect in our relationship with God. To be able to address God as father was quite an advancement of revelation and new covenant theology. 
He had made Himself known to His covenant people of old by the name Yahweh. He was no longer just the God of the Creator. He was no longer the God that sustained and the One who breathed this world into existence. But as He approached Moses at the burning bush, He then revealed His covenant name, I Am. And so God's people knew God by name. But Jesus reveals here of a greater and further truth that not only did you know God by name, you now can address Him as Father. This familial relationship brings a warmth and a love and an emotional familiarity to us on a level that we can feel safe and familiar. Father. J.I. Packer says on this father relationship, you sum up the whole New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as revelation of fatherhood of a holy creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of God of being God's child and of having God as his father. If this is not the thoughts that prompt and control his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. Fathers, Jesus could not have used the illustration, this familial term, of this word, Father, to teach the fatherhood of God our Creator, if this relationship of a father to a son wasn't such a special relationship. And fathers, we must live in the constant awareness of how we live in the presence of our children, how we relate to them, how we train them, because it reflects upon the person and the glory of God. What they often learn of God, they learn from our living in them in this relationship. Fathers make a loud statement about God in their own homes. In Proverbs, the the author of Proverbs, Solomon, was using a very particular word of a father when he chastens or disciplines his child. The very word musar is translated that way in the Hebrew. And that word, however, musar, which is often translated as training or discipline or chastening, however, is not a negative word, but a positive word. And he uses it of a father over his children. And in commenting on that particular word, the theological word book of the Old Testament says this, the father bears the image of his covenant Lord. And as such, he stands in a parallel relationship over his children, hastening and correcting, instructing, providing, which are expressions of an interpersonal relationship of love. To address the God of heaven, the creator of the universe, Yahweh himself, in such a familial manner was quite new and radical. Imagine the Jews wouldn't even pronounce the proper name of God, Yahweh. 
They thought that it was too high and too reverent, so they would not pronounce that name. And so now call him Father? In fact, part of the early church referred to God with such hesitation that they would pray this Lord's Prayer beginning like this. Quote, Grant that we may dare to call on Thee as Father and say our Father. They hedged it a bit because of the culture and the strength of which Almighty God, the Yahweh, Creator of the heaven and earth, and such that we can dare to call Him Father? I do admit that we have taken God down to such a level of humanity that we have no gravity with Him any longer, and we call Him just the good man upstairs, or our, and we just make Him so, so trite and frivolous that we lose the majesty of it all. But God wants us to understand this relationship of fatherhood as such of an emotional, familial, and love and comforting, warm, provisional provider that He wants you to call Him Father and He wants you to crawl up in His lap as His child and pour out your heart to Him. I love it when my children, without being prompted, just say, Daddy, I love you. There's a familial relationship. And this is what God is getting at in prayer. Our Father, we love you. We love you. And this is how Jesus was teaching us to pray. It's one of the surpassing blessings of the new covenant is that we come to know God much more personally. In fact, it was Jesus... God Himself, who was born of a woman, became man that we might know God personally. That He was touched with all of our infirmities, yet without sin. And now He can sympathize with us and He is one of us. And He has taught us that we can call God our Father. He's even called us, and He's not ashamed to call us His brethren. When we pray, we come to our Father. Some people never address God in their prayers as Father. Not only are we are to address God as an intimate Father, but we are to address Him as a majestic King. Our Father who art in heaven. Heaven qualifies the fatherhood of God. The idea of only a true and royal children are here expressed. It is this 
fatherhood that is being qualified with the royal majesty of the God of heavens and the sovereign of the universe such that we are included in this palace, in this kingdom such that we are His children as princes. God is both our Father and a royal majestic King. And you are in His palace. And as you come through the different rooms of the palace looking for your father, you see him sitting upon the throne in his throne room. And you can go right into that throne room because Christ has made the way for you. And cloaked in his royal garment of Christ's righteousness, you can approach the throne with boldness and say, Father, you are the great king of the universe. What a great privilege I have to be here. The marvel is that we see God himself revealed to us in such a way that he wants us to see both his familial fatherhood and his majesty as the sovereign over all. And where your father is the great king and sovereign, on those two principles hangs all of your confidence and your assurance and your comfort and all of the things you hope and trust. On those two principles, God is your father and he is the king and sovereign over the universe, gives you all the confidence in your praise. Gives you all the assurance that not only does he hear, but he can do all of his holy will. And he has bidden us to this communication that we can let our prayers be known to him. And he can do something about it. A father is one who loves and nourishes and protects and provides for his children. And if you, earthly fathers, know how to give good things to your earthly children, how much more the perfect, good, and gracious heavenly father can give his spirit in everything that pertains to life and goodliness and every good thing, because no good thing will he withhold from those who seek him to his of his people, his children. God's sovereignty is the basis of our great confidence. So not only do you have God as your father, you have God's omnipotence ruling over all of the affairs of life. But not only do we have God as our father, and we have our father who is the great king, but we address him in a corporate fellowship. Our father who art in heaven... And the very first word in that particular phrase is given in the first person plural pronoun of which this entire prayer is built on. Our Father, give us, forgive us, deliver us. And God relates to His people individually, but He also relates to them as a whole. And here we see this first person plural stresses the importance of God's people in unity praying to Him. 
This is what we see in Revelation chapter 5 and chapter 8 when it speaks of that incense from the altar of incense ascending up into the nostrils of God, a sweet-smelling aroma. The incense was burned within the holy place. And as we began to approach the very presence of God, and as we get closer to the throne of God, the place becomes more set apart. It becomes more holy. And the place that is right outside of the veil is that altar of incense. And on that altar, the fire is put from the burning sacrifice, the altar of incense is lit. And that smoke ascends and fills the holy place. And it sits closest to the veil. Once a year, the great high priest would enter in the Holy of Holies to offer atonement. The only time of the year that the great high priest could go in as he's representing God's people. And for the first time, or the only time of the year, he could see the beauty of that inner sanctum. He saw the very throne of God where the light would begin to glisten off of the gold of the atoning lid with the angels overshadowing it, but it would be the prayers, it would be the smoke of that incense as soon as the veil was parted for him to go in, it would be the smoke that would waft into the Holy of Holies to be the great cloud that would then surround him. That would be his veil. And Revelation speaks about the smoke of that altar of incense being the prayers of the people, the corporate prayers of the people. As they are outside and the the representative comes before the throne of God to represent them, they are praying. And all of this is delightful to God. He is smelling and He is eating. And he is sensing in our terms, by the way. He's putting these things in our terms. These are the corporate prayers of God's people. We see this corporate praying throughout the New Testament. We see it actually in the Old Testament. We see it in emblem form of the incense, but we see it gathered many times over and over. What was the church doing when the Holy Spirit was poured upon the church at Pentecost? They were praying. And then it says later in that same chapter, they devoted themselves to prayer. In chapter 4, after a great trial of a couple of the members of the leaders of the church. As Peter and John were suffering under the religious leaders, they came back rejoicing that they were and thankful that they were able to suffer for the sake of Christ. And the whole church lifted up their voices with one accord and prayed. 
When Peter was arrested in Acts chapter 12, the church was meeting together and prayed. And we're praying. In Acts chapter 13, the first missionaries were sent out from the church in Antioch while the church was praying together. It was while the church was praying that Paul and Barnabas were set apart for that first missionary work. And it was while they were, while Paul and Silas were in their journey on that second tour, they were arrested and they were thrown into a jail in Philippi. And what were they doing at midnight but praying? Praying and singing. Corporate prayer is such a vital part of our Christian life and growth. It's a vital part of the church. And it's something that is drastically, drastically missing from church life today in many churches. The power of the Spirit of God has gone out from so many pulpits because the people have stopped praying. They stopped meeting to pray. But you're never going to have a vital prayer life personally if you neglect this corporate aspect of kingdom praying. Sinclair Ferguson says, speaking about this first phrase, and he's summing it up, our Father which art in heaven, he says this, quote, We do not live in intimacy with God in such a way that destroys our reverence for Him or in a manner that isolates us from our fellow Christians. If we were to write these few words over the whole of our lives, Their truth and power would transform our relationship with God to ourselves and to others. End of quote. The address. Our Father, which art in heaven. But quickly, we move on to the conclusion, the doxology. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. These things that our prayer encapsulates begins with a great address, and here it is showing by pattern. It ends in a great doxology. And we must acknowledge these things in our praying. We acknowledge them in our lives as we pray. And as we pray, we are asking God to square us up with these things so that it is about God's kingdom, it is about His power, and it is His glory. That we pray. And effectual praying must always acknowledge all three if there is to be praying that God answers. First of all, we consider in that doxological conclusion of this prayer God's kingdom. God's kingdom is His rule, it's His rule. It's the exercise of His sovereignty over all that He has created. Not just in the physical realm, but in the invisible realm, of which is just a part of creation as the visible realm, but you just don't see it. But it's real. It is God's dominion, not man's. And so much of what is inclusive in God's dominion, you don't see. 
It is God's sovereignty over all. That's what we must acknowledge. God does all things here for the sake of His kingdom. So that we must yield ourselves completely to that kingdom, even if we don't see it. I was reminded this morning, I was spending some time in prayer and reading the Word, and I'm reading through 2 Corinthians, and I was coming to this passage which I thought was so relevant. Paul is having to, to, to defend his, his ministry to the Corinthian church. Now, this is just a, a bit of an illustration. Paul founded the church at Corinth. It was his child. And he tells him in the first epistle, he says, you know, you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, but you have not many fathers. I am a father to you. And they were the ones that challenged his pastoral ministry the most. And he writes these epistles. The second epistle to the church at Corinth was a defense of his apostolic ministry. And he is showing them the things that he had endured for their sakes and for their joy. They were accusing him of other things and other wrongs, and yet he begins to recite, and he says, now look, (laughs) I don't normally do this. But for your sake, let me just expand on a little bit of my ministry for you for just a moment, if you will give me that attention. I speak as a fool. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. At night and a day I spent in the deep, in journeys often, perils of water, and perils of robbers, and perils of my own countrymen, and perils of the Gentiles, and perils in the city, and perils in the wilderness, and perils in the sea, and perils among false brethren, in weariness, and in toil, and sleeplessness, often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings, often, in cold, and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily my deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak? Am I not weak? If I must boast, I'm going to boast in the things which concern my infirmity. He goes on to speak about the the thorn in the flesh that he prayed three times for God to remove, and he didn't. He says, so therefore, I am going to be weak so that God can be strong. Now, in all of these things, it is God's priority. It is his kingdom. It is his sovereignty, because I don't see how all of these things work. And for that reason, and not for any other reason second to that, I am going to pray that It is about Him and His kingdom. I will endure these things for your sake and for your joy and for your kingdom, for God's kingdom to be growing in you. He tells the Philippian church, he says, you know, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice, for I am being poured out as a drink offering so that your joy might be made full. It is only when we have God's kingdom as the very priority in our praying that we will then yield ourselves to everything so that we, even with we don't see what's happening behind the scene, 
we can then square ourselves up to live for the glory of Jesus Christ and the the greatness of His kingdom because He's doing something in us and through us that we don't see. God may not desire to take that thorn of the flesh from Saul and He may not desire to take the infirmity from you. Doing something great for the name of God and for His kingdom cost our apostle Paul a lot in his life. And he doesn't go around just bragging about these things and neither does he go into a little pity party. He is actually showing in this one example what he was doing in order to support his ministry to those that were challenging it. He wasn't doing this for himself. That's ludicrous. Why would he be going through all of this if it was for his kingdom? There's something much greater there that he is suffering because the kingdom is his priority. See, God does everything, everything that he does for his great name. And he does everything here for his kingdom. And to that, we must yield ourselves completely. And when we acknowledge this wholeheartedly, we remind ourselves of His priority when we come to ask Him of whatever it is we're going to ask Him. If he decides to allow us to struggle through a trial, there's a greater purpose that you're not seeing. It's a cause of great value to the kingdom that he will allow his children to suffer. It's a great value to the kingdom. And if you just know that by the word of God alone, knowing that he does not withhold any good thing from you, that everything happens together for good, it happens for his glory, And if your priority is on God's rights and on His kingdom's rights, not my rights, kingdom rights. Not my fears, not my indulgences, not my standard of living or my affluence, not my health, not my belongings, not my desires. No, none of that, but God's kingdom must be the priority for my life. And he's going to come back to this particular theme at the end of this chapter when he tells you, look, you're worrying about these things. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. And then he's going to give a big reveal, a big reveal in Matthew 24. And we're going to come to much later. He's going to say, this kingdom of my Father, which was prepared for you. The sufferings that you now do, if you have the kingdom as your priority, you will be greatly rewarded for it in a manner that you cannot comprehend. And as you have done it for God, God will honor you. But you must have his kingdom first. That is priority in praying. That will change the way you request. 
That will get you out of all this introversion and all about me and my kingdom and my desires and my indulgences and my all blah, 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 blah. And say, God, if this is what you want for my life, let me bear the cup and be baptized with the sufferings with which my Jesus has been baptized with. Oh, how I might know Him. And the fellowship of His sufferings is what the prayer was for the Apostle Paul. That's kingdom priority. For thine is the kingdom, and thine is the power. It is God's power. Unless we pray believing in the power of God, our praying is fruitless. Do you believe God can actually take that mountain and cast it into the sea? If you do not believe that, it is fruitless to pray it. Faith praying must then believe as Hebrews 11.6 would say, but without faith it is impossible to please God, and without faith it is impossible to have prayers answered. But without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Do you believe that God will reward? Do you believe He can Do what you ask to do. Do you believe that He is all-powerful? Do you really believe it? Do you believe He truly is the sovereign who has created everything? Yes, here. Do you believe it here? Do you pray like you believe it? Faith praying is believing God has the power and the desire to answer our prayers and that He does answer our prayers and to give us the good things that we desire if it is His glory and His kingdom for which we desire them. And then it is God's glory. For thine is the kingdom, and thine is the power, and thine is the glory. James tells us that sometimes we don't have our prayers answered because we ask amiss, not for God's glory, but for His own. For our own. Again, kingdom praying is keeping the focus on God, on His priorities, on His glory. Kingdom praying is five-eighths filled with God, three-eighths filled with your needs. And God is very concerned with your needs. In fact, He understands when He took a piece of dirt and He breathed into it the breath of life and man became a living being, that man was dependent completely from the very beginning, every moment upon God, his creator. And he understands this, but there's something even more important he wants you to understand. That man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And he lives by relationship. That is how eternal life is defined to us And when Jesus was praying in John chapter 17. Relationship. Kingdom praying is first and foremost worship. As you go to the Lord in prayer, don't immediately get to your request. Don't immediately get to your things, but pray addressing God. And when you pray, consider this is the skeleton. You need to have a time set aside every day to get alone with God and pray. But don't rush into His presence rattling off a bunch of requests that are focused upon your flesh. Take time to address Him, worshiping, 
our Father, the, the great God who has established a covenant people, a people who are in covenant fellowship with God as the bride of your Son, the one people united together in union with Jesus Christ and communion with one another to be the Son's inheritance because it pleased the Father to bruise the Son and because He was faithful to do this, the Father has given the Son a great inheritance, the people, our, the very bride, our Father, this familial relationship that you have appealed to us to call you. It is unfathomable to think the great God of heaven, the creator of the universe, now can come to us and call us children, but even more unfathomable that you want us to call us Father, for we were afraid to even bear your name, Yahweh. Oh, how good and gracious is the Lord. Your mercies are new to us every day. Your compassions, they fail not. I'm unworthy to be in your presence, but you have bid me to come and you have ushered me in through the, the, the work of your Son. And such life is there here before your presence, such life and light and glory. I slept last night, Lord, but you did not. I mean, this, this is prayer, this is worship. So take the skeleton and hang the meat on it. Our Father, which art in heaven, the great sovereign, remembering that you alone, O Lord, are the king of your people, and we need you as our king. Lord, you are our priest, yes. You are our prophet, yes, but you are our great king. And we failed to recognize that. And you, you raised up Nebuchadnezzar to come and, and take us into a land so that we would remember that you were the king. But look what you did to him. You drove him out and he ate grass like an ox for seven seasons to pass upon him until you restored him so that he might acknowledge in the heathen land that you alone are the great king. Oh, yes, Lord, even the heathen kings will acknowledge you. Because in that day, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord. So you hang that meat on it. You think about his attributes and you've been cloaking and clothing your prayer in worship. And let me tell you something. The more you do that, the more your needs will begin to be met in that priority than before you can even get to asking God a thing. So may God enrich your prayer life and mine so that it becomes a glorious relationship, a time of worship, and not merely a list of needs and burdens. Because while He surely desires to provide, and He surely desires to hear, and He surely is a sympathetic God that can intercede with care, He wants more for you than just to see and meet your needs. Because the greatest need that you have is to see Him in all of His glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for how Jesus taught us to pray. And we confess that we fall so short of this glory. We confess we spend so little time before Your presence. 
merely basking in your glory, even sitting quietly, meditating upon what you have declared to be true of yourself. And Lord, we are your people. And so many metaphors have you given about us that we consider the sheep of your pasture and the good shepherd who protects us and who desires to lead us to those green pastures where we can run and play as little lambs and yet have the protection of the shepherd keeping us from the wolves. The very bride that enjoys an intimate relationship with the husband, the very building and temple of God in which the Spirit dwells, the covenant people of God that are called children and our Savior Himself calls us His brethren. The very city of God that descends down out of heaven, arrayed in all of the glory as a bride. The heavenly Jerusalem and the mother of us all. Lord, how thankful we are for such honor that you have given to your people and the great privilege we have to come and consider not only who we are, but to be able to talk with you in a very personal way and that you are here with us so personally and so really and you hear us and you care for us. And may we be ever more conscious. May we ever more be mindful of this truth and live in its light. And as we spend more time in prayer, may it be delightful to our souls, not burdensome, not wearisome, but may it be worship. May we not treat prayer as something that we do to check off our list to get on about our day. Yeah, we've done, we've done that today, now we can get on to our work. Lord, may it not be. May we take the time to worship. And so, Lord, we pray that you would take this message and, and graft it into the fabric of our souls and lives that we might go from here this day and forevermore, delighting and communing with you in prayer. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who made it all possible. Amen.